Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. trying to decide if this is the week after spring share because last week was supposed to be our spring share campaign here on the faith radio network but now it's two weeks before our spring share campaign so we're trying to decide if today is the monday of the week after or the week two weeks prior no so, no, no 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 remember no. we said it was the <laughs> the week after the three weeks before the spring share oh my goodness wibbly okay, wobbly so, timey wimey yeah so my mom was lamenting yesterday she thinks that she and my stepdad have been in self-quarantine for seven weeks, but she's completely lost count. So then she was asking me, so how long has it been? And I'm like, oh, mom, I just, I don't know. I don't know. Completely lost track of time. So let me um, let me do three really good news stories this morning to lead us off. Uh, I feel like we need some encouragement and inspiration this morning. So here you go. If you have not been watching John Krasinski's Some Good News, that's the name of it, Some Good News on YouTube, let me just tell you. Uh, if you've got YouTube blocked for every other purpose and reason, uh, we've got two reasons today to unblock um, YouTube. One is going to be the Zach Jenkins weekly video that he posts from Cedarville University, which gives us a great COVID-19 update on Monday mornings. But this is another really good reason to unblock YouTube. Some good news. That's the name of it. It's John Krasinski's uh, show. I'm going to describe it that way. Um, he's now had, I don't know, three episodes. Well, this past Friday... He wanted to do something memorable for high school seniors. So he hosted a virtual senior prom. He was the DJ. Um, Everybody got dressed up. He was wearing a tux. So you were encouraged to, you know, be in your prom wear. Join. uh, He was joined by Chance the Rapper, Billie Eilish, the Jonas Brothers. High school seniors and their families across the country were able to participate in a variety of ways. On the same night that many of us were engaged in Trail Life USA's Backyard Camp Out, which we ended up doing at our house on Saturday night because it was raining Friday night, And as robust a participant kind of person as I might be, um, camping in my backyard in the rain did not sound like the memory making that I wanted to do. So we did it on Saturday night instead. On the other end of the generational spectrum, let me tell you about Captain Tom Moore. Captain Tom Moore is 99 years old. He is a British World War II veteran. He broke his hip um, and he has to use a walker with wheels for mobility. Now, that did not stop him from doing what he could do to participate in his country's, he's in the UK, his country's response to this pandemic. He set a goal of walking the 25 meters around his garden 100 times. Um, And he he committed to doing so before his 100th birthday on April the 30th. Well, he's already completed the task. He did so on Thursday. And in doing so, he raised more than $33 million to support the British health services in the midst of this pandemic. So, Uh, There is something that you can do. If you see something that causes concern, raises concern, breaks your heart on the news, there's something that you can do. Um, All right, let me go to 13-year-old Quinn because he saw something on the news that bothered him, and he thought, no, I could do something about that. So Quinn is 13 years old. For weeks, he'd been seeing these photographs circulating online 
of these tired doctors and nurses, and they had these marks and these bruises on their faces from wearing these tight-fitting medical masks. And uh, he's a seventh grader from Canada. He saw the pictures, and he wanted to know what, what they needed. Well, apparently what they need are these ear guards that help relieve some of the pressure um, on the mask. And so he thought, I could make those. He found a design on the Internet. He's 13 years old. He found a design on the Internet. He said, I could crank out a few dozen of those on a 3D printer that he got for his birthday last year. Um, and so uh, after she posted a couple of photos of her proje- of her son's project on her Facebook page, not only did requests come flying in, but so did um, support for help in having him um, uh, in having him produce more of those. And so um, if you want to check out Quinn's project, I think you have to go to his mom's Facebook page to do that. All of these stories are actually posted today, maybe surprisingly, at the Washington Post. So good news. It's finding its way um, out into the world and people are doing good to others. And so let me just encourage you today. Good is happening in the midst of all of this. There is good that you can do. Um, And in, I don't know, maybe in the opening of the next hour, I'm going to give you a list of 10 fun, really simple things you can just do for your neighbors to outreach. But right now, Zach Jenkins is actually holding on the line. He visits with us each Monday during the COVID-19 crisis. He's bringing us an update today. We are going to talk about when we might get back to normal, what new normal might look like, and sort of what's the path from here to there. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm talking now with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. Welcome back, sir. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, So let's just start with my 87 and 82-year-old parents have basically been self-quarantined for, they think, seven weeks, but they've kind of lost count. Um, And pretty much this is their question. Um, Dr. Zach, when, 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 when can we get back to normal? That really is the million dollar question. And I I think we actually have some encouraging news on that. Um, Up until now, there's been a lot of gray area as far as when, what what our timelines really look like. Um, Some states have been kind of alluding to at some point in the future. But more recently, the White House ended up releasing this past week, uh, what they call the opening up America again guidelines. And so what this is is really just a set of parameters that they're sharing with states to guide some of their decision making regarding when they might reopen sections of the state. Um, Right now, the decision as far as when states reopen is going to be left up entirely to them. But these guidelines do kind of provide them some ammunition as far as decision making goes. So that's definitely a note of encouragement. Okay, so let's um, let's talk a little bit about why the conversation is different in some places than in others in terms of the when, and that is because of models. And the modeling, can you talk a little bit about modeling? Because the modeling has changed over time. We've seen, you know, predicted numbers of loss of life drop dramatically. Um, And yet the percentages of people who are expected to either have already had or experienced the coronavirus during this season is, you know, still considered a very high percentage of the population. Talk a little bit about modeling. Sure. So so I'll kind of take a step back for a second and, and speak to what you had said about states and, and possibly different timelines. So the first thing I think to keep in mind um, before we even think about modeling is the fact that states have been exposed to the virus at different points in time. 
and that influences what those models end up looking like. Um, but as far as models go, the the big issue we've had is we kind of had almost a uh, a very rough forecast. Think about it as like a 30-day weather forecast, which is you know largely inaccurate if you're looking at the end of the month. But as we've had more and more data, we were able to narrow that focus down a little bit more and get a much more accurate forecast. So that's really what we've been kind of working against. And, and some issues we've had, we've had issues with limit or testing limitations. We've had issues with uh, knowing how infective the virus is, how potentially uh, harmful it is to people. Those were some unknowns we didn't quite have a full grasp on. We're getting a better idea day to day, and that directly influences our modeling. And another thing that's kind of interesting is the models that were originally developed had some error included, assuming people wouldn't necessarily adhere to social distancing very well. And then what we'd we're be finding, naughty. yeah, <laughs> right, right. And what we're finding is people are actually doing a better job than than what they thought they were going to do. And so that actually is speeding up some of those models and making the projections look a little bit more positive. All right. So we've been more well-behaved than, uh, than was expected. And so that, that has changed some of the moder- Some of the variables have changed. Um, you said initially, maybe they accounted for a lot of air. Um, there's also some debate maybe about first exposure. And then there are still several unknowns. Talk about the unknowns and why that's an important part of of why the models still have these like ranges of possibility. So I, I think if you if you kind of think about how we've employed social distancing efforts on a massive scale, it's been sort of a blunt instrument. It's been imprecise, but it was one of the better tools that we had at our disposal. Um, the unfortunate reality, though, is that when you use something like that, it does have a lot of downstream consequences, and that's what everyone's really concerned about. And so some of the unknowns that that we really need to understand before we can narrow down our focus a little bit, one of which is going to be how effective is the virus. What we're finding, it's a lot more infective than we originally thought, um, but that data is only more kind of recently come in. Another issue that we really didn't understand is, and still, still don't necessarily understand, is how how serious this virus is as far as fatal outcomes. And we don't know what the what the variance is between groups that maybe have more than one pre existing condition, uh, that maybe have, you know, maybe that are elderly with pre pre existing conditions, that kind of thing, and that's called a case fatality rate. Um, so we need a better grasp of that. And then another thing we have to understand is how how prevalent this is in the population, because that really tells us um, potentially who's carrying the virus right now, and then maybe who's developed some immunity to it. So if we understand those those big three categories of things, we will potentially be able to kind of scale back social distancing and really do focus areas on regions that are at the highest risk. All right, Dr. Zach Jenkins and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about um, the goals that we need to have in terms of managing this reopen Uh, And again, we are talking today about opening up America again. The guidelines are posted at whitehouse.com backslash opening up America. If you haven't seen those yet, we certainly want you to check that out. In the next segment, we're also going to talk about the phased social distancing plan. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. He gives us an update each Monday on sort of where we are in the COVID-19 process. And we are talking today 
about uh, opening up America. You can find it at whitehouse.com backslash opening up America. We have some new guidelines related to uh, phased social distancing and reopening the American economy in particular. Talk with us, uh, Zach, about the goals um, uh, during this reopening process. So sure. Uh, the, the guidelines actually spell out the, uh, the this idea of what they call gating criteria. And so these are things that allow states to kind of gauge where they're at with uh, safety of kind of reopening things on a, on a broader scale. So the first thing that they're really looking for is to see a downward trend in the number of cases. And that's going to tell them that maybe they're starting to round that bend. They, they've hit their peak. They're seeing that that downward number of cases, which helps them to recognize whether or not the uh, virus has been contained a little bit more. And it also helps them to kind of compare and contrast where the cases are at with where their healthcare system capacity is. And so that's the other element that's going to be really important is to make sure that they're not, we, we have states that aren't using crisis care. And what that really means is, is resources beyond the normal. So if we look to New York as an example, they're using hospital ships and uh, hotels and things like that to take care of patients as opposed to what you know you would normally consider a hospital bed. So that's kind of where we want to aim with things. Um, so using those, those two elements, it'll give us a good idea that, that things may be a little bit safe to return to normal. But once states kind of compare themselves with that, if they feel they meet that criteria, that's when these, these guidelines suggest kind of opening things back up in phases. And I had sort of suspected this is what we were going to see because turning everything on at once, there's a concern that maybe we'd see a big surge of cases. And so what they're really trying to do is encourage people to kind of slowly ramp up different sectors of the economy and some of our, our normal behaviors we used to engage in before we, we kind of get back to 100% normal. All right, so we're going to look for numbers leveling off. The, what we have talked about is the flattening of the curve. Um, we're going to hopefully see by May the 1st maybe a rate of death decreasing, but that's dependent on um, on some things. And part of what that's dependent on is how much we know and don't know, still don't know about the coronavirus, and also how much testing is available and how many people have access to it. I mean, just talk with us about what you what you think um, the next few weeks looks like, um, because I think that it helps people anticipate, like there's going to hopefully be ramped up testing. Those tests are going to be different. They're going to be, and then what those tests say, like if I go and I have an antibody test that's now widely available in the state where I live um, and people who are asymptomatic are invited to go get one, um, maybe my state is unusual, but I'm hoping that we see that duplicated across the country. But if I go and get a test and it shows that I have already had the virus, then I might be more free to go and do things. I might also find out that I have it right now. Um, and if I and if I find out that, my life's going to change, you know, in very different ways because I'm going to then self-quarantine for a number of days, and we're going to want to know everybody that I've had contact with. So just talk a little bit about some of those things. Sure. Uh, so, so one big thing that obviously you, you've kind of alluded to is we're trying to ramp up the scaling of testing right now. And our issue that we've had to date is some of our tests have kind of resulted in more false negatives or false positives than what we would like. So a false negative would basically be a case where it, you would go to get tested for the virus and you actually were infected, but the test came back and said you you weren't infected. 
And a false positive, of course, would be sort of the opposite, where you actually didn't have an infection, and it would tell you that you did have the infection. Okay, so, so, can, so I do, some, can I do uh-huh. a test? Can I give an example that people are super-duper familiar with? That would be like a sure. home pregnancy test. A home pregnancy test is very, very accurate. You're not going to get a false positive, and you're not going to get a false negative. It's pretty much going to tell you whether or not you're pregnant. Am I right? That That's correct, yes. Pretty high. So we're talking here about tests that are not that reliable yet um, and and certainly aren't that old. And I mean, they can't possibly be. And so that's part of the conversation, right? People want that kind of let me just check myself. That's not available yet. It would be great if it were, but we're just not there yet. That's correct. And, and oddly enough, there's some uh, there's some, I guess, uh, people out there that are, are less than reputable that are trying to sell home tests, which actually don't exist right now. Exactly. Uh, so that that's a major concern that we have. But as far as testing reliability goes, we are seeing that increase in some ways. But I will tell you, as early as last week, the uh, White House received a report about antibody testing, and we're still seeing some limitations with them reporting back false positives. So the, what that would mean in context of antibodies, mm. so if, if you had developed long-term immunity, you would expect certain kinds of antibodies to show back up. And so this would tell people that they had developed immunity when maybe they hadn't. So that's one concern that we had. There may be too much margin for error. Um, so they're trying to improve that reliability, and I believe Dr. Burks from the White House Task Force had stated they're looking for at least 90% um, reliability with these tests, which is probably one of the best things we can expect in the short term. But once those things are scaled, what will probably happen is they'll be setting up what are called points of dispensing, and that's run by the public health department. And those are places that you could actually just stop and go and get tested. Um, they also may be using a lot of pharmacies and uh, sort of the drive-throughs through there because pharmacists have actually been enabled to provide these tests on on sites and within certain localities. Okay, so once we um, have much more wide-scale testing available and it is reliable, um, then we're going to still have a conversation about um, containment because people are going to find out that they have it maybe who have not been self-quarantining. Talk a little bit about um, these aspects, Uh, even even the quarantine of asymptomatic people who then need to be isolated, and then there needs to be this contact tracing. I found this part fascinating because we really need a bunch of people to be engaged in this contact tracing. Yeah, so so contact tracing is something that we do in in the setting of any real outbreak. We've done it with Ebola, we did it with H1N1, and we've done it with foodborne outbreaks as an example. So like E. coli from Chipotle, they've done it in those cases. Um, But but the thought is basically if you find someone that's infected, um, you end up recommending that they isolate themselves. Um, unless they're 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 automatically isolated because they're in a hospital, right? But you you've isolated a case basically, and then what you do is you have sort of we'll call them disease detectives that hunt down other individuals that that person may have been exposed to in the period they think they were carrying that virus, and then they would recommend those individuals self quarantine. Now under under conditions where we don't have a test, the challenge that that creates is you've got people that are just kind of waiting around for about two weeks and they're, they just aren't able to go out and do too much. And, and so that's not really ideal. So that's where testing becomes helpful because with the test, you could kind of quickly say if they have the virus or they don't have it when they're quarantined. And it, that would mean they could leave quarantine early. They wouldn't have to stay in there for two weeks. 
if they were negative or if they were positive, then you could then recommend that they isolate themselves and do more contract, contract tracing. So what you can imagine though, as you, as you kind of mentioned, as we, as we start to use that at a broad scale, that's going to be very resource intensive. And I, I, as I understand it, they suspect that that could take about 300,000 people playing that role of the disease det detective right now. And the health departments themselves only have about 2,500 employees in the country. So, yeah, so I'm thinking if you are a student and you don't have anything to do, it's the end of your, you know, your academic year has basically ended um, and you are looking for something really cool to do um, as, a, as your future employer, um, it would be really cool to me that you had volunteered your time to become a disease detective in, during the pandemic outbreak um, and you started contact tracing for your local health department. So there you go. There's something good you can do if you're a student. Um, if you've got a student sitting around not doing anything, maybe this is a good use of their time, probably looking for nursing students and other people in uh, who have some knowledge of healthcare. I'm also thinking of like mission kids. I, I happen to, uh, you know, have a cousin who... You know, she raised her kids on the mission field. They actually did contact tracing during the Ebola outbreak in Africa. Mm -hmm. They already know how to do this, and um, and they're students here in the U.S. now. So there are people who maybe have some skill sets for this, and we just need to lift them up. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. bunch of retired people, too, probably looking for something to do. All right. Hey, there you go. Um, Zach Jenkins, always full of great information. I think today we're going to direct people um, to the whitehouse.com. Gov. It's like it's whitehouse.gov, isn't it? I wrote com. That's wrong. Whitehouse.gov <laughs> website and uh, opening up America is what you're looking for. Whitehouse.gov opening up America. Zach's a video will be posted later today at Cedarville's YouTube page. Hey, thanks again. We appreciate it, Zach. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be right back. All right, Paul, sometimes I can't remember what I'm doing. Um, I think right now I'm setting up Adam Carrington, who's coming yes. next from Hillsdale College. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Dr. Adam Carrington is up next. He and I are going to talk about uh, a little bit at the intersection of politics. And um, I think what I'll say is basically at the intersection today at politics and the coronavirus. So we're going to talk a little bit about authority, the authority that we invest in those um, who are our leaders here in the United States. What does it mean to be people who are self-governed in a time when there are lots of restrictions. Um, and then we've got, you know, people protesting against all of that. And we've got proposals to reopen all of those conversations I'm going to have next with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. We'll be right back. When I was a kid, the biggest altercations occurred on the playground. Bullies, king of the hill. Reputations were destroyed between swing sets and jungle gyms. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. It's different today. The threat to your kid's ego is invasive and pervasive. I'm talking, of course, about the Internet. Cyberbullying runs rampant. And without supervision in the form of hateful Facebook posts, text, or anonymous comments in chat rooms. If you see evidence of it against your child, or worse, from your child, take immediate action. Rescue victims from the damaging effects of bullying, whether in person or online. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find helpful resources at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store.
again today, Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Welcome back, Adam. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, glad to talk to people outside of my basement. <laughs> um, okay, so you need to live in a place that has more scope for the imagination. That's that's all I have to say. <laughs> I, I told my for- daughter last night who didn't want to leave her room after bedtime that her imagination and books could take her anywhere. She wasn't convinced, but... Yeah, she's she. You are right. You are right. And and stories reading is actually really um, a great. I don't know if the word is is therapy, but um, but reading is really great to transport us to places and give us some experiences right now that we might not otherwise have. So appreciate appreciate that recommendation. Um, Okay, uh, let's jump into a conversation. I'm just going to throw like four or five things out there and then you are going to lead us through what has become kind of a morass. So we have um, the president, we have governors of our states, we have uh, questions about who has authority to do what, we have guidelines issued at a national level that have to be implemented at the state level, and then we have protesters who um, are now out in the streets in some places. Can you just kind of take that constellation of things that we're seeing in the headlines and help us understand um, maybe the right way to view and think about the things that are happening in our country right now. Sure. I, I, and, and in some ways, I think that's a really nice summary of kind of the political uh, movement on the ground right now. And I think it's sort of two broad issues. I think I would try to categorize it. One is the the, the biggest is we're trying to figure out how to get back to semi-normal safely and trying to balance, therefore, the issue of um, safety, which has been t- has taken primary uh, of uh, health safety, has taken the primary lead uh, in our policies for the last month plus, and the idea that we need to uh, you know st- make this not the new normal and try to find some way to start protecting more the economic health of people, and the guidelines and the protesters, I think, are both. Attempts at 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 at, at one at um, trying to give some concrete evidence for how are we going to get back to normal. A lot of people, I think, are really frustrated now that we 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 can't just keep hearing. Um, well, when it gets better, we'll change. We need to hear. Okay, what is getting better? How? And I think the guidelines that the CDC uh, at the national level put out. Uh, aren't bad. Uh, They're they're, they're a decent, uh, semi-concrete way of saying how to do this. Uh, The protesters, and we've had a lot of them here in Michigan because we've had one of the most, um, let's just say, expansive uh, stay-at-home orders, is, I think, people really needing to uh, hear how's this going to change, how's this going to get better, Uh, chafing at what I think in some places, uh, including here, are overreach on trying to protect health. Uh, and I think that uh, underneath that bigger issue of how do we balance our liberty, our economic security, our health security, is the issue of federalism, that our government, uh, our, our, our system of government has a united purpose, protect the life, liberty, and property of its citizens, help them to flourish in their communities, um, but that we've divided how to do that between the national and the state level, and that... Um, 
this kind of uh, give and take between the governors and the president and it, you know, the president saying at one point he was in charge of doing so and then pulling back governors having different responses is all uh, the fact that our founders, I think, wisely said there are some things that need to be handled at the national level, like war and treaties. And I would say maybe even movement between states uh, in a pandemic but that there is a lot that still can ha happen at the state level. We forget how much states matter and that um, we're going to have to assess the, how bad things are in different states. My state of Michigan has been pretty you know, one of the worst uh, versus others that aren't as bad. And I think if you bring this together, the principles of liberty and safety combined with the uh, management of it, the state and federal level, uh, those are the things that are being worked out here, I think, in real time. So let me um, follow up with this kind of a question. Leadership then is going to require discernment of what's happening um, as locally as possible in order for there to be local answers. And here I would just talk about statewide. I realize that's a big locality, but that's really the conversation that we're having in terms of what, what does local mean right now? It means county level and then state level conversations. So leadership at a state level is going to require discernment of what is happening and then the application of these federal guidelines to your local reality. And so that is going to look different in Tennessee, in Michigan, in Florida, in New York, in Minnesota, in Washington. Yes? Absolutely. And I think the concept to bring up here, I'll give uh, two terms for it. Uh, in, in politics, it's called prudence. And in, in the book of Proverbs, it's called wisdom. And what prudence or wisdom is, is it's, it's, it's uh, not merely knowing abstract principles, justice is good and justice is bad. Um, and it's not merely knowing what's going on, just factually saying, oh, this is what's happening in uh, Minnesota or in Michigan. It's the, um, uh, the, the artful or craftsmanlike way of combining the two and saying, Here are what, here's what we want to get at. Here's the principles of what's good. Uh, and like I said before, health, safety, uh, economic security, other things. Here's what's going on in this particular locality. How do I bring those together? How do I achieve the most good possible in the circumstances given? And that's not something that is going to be the same answer every time and place, every certain situation. That's why you need leadership, and that's why those leaders need prudence or wisdom, the ability to artfully act in real life. And 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 that and that's a and we're seeing here, having not had a pandemic in a century, that tested I think to the extreme. There's really. Oh, not that many blueprints in the last few generations for how to do it. It really is going to take uh, a great, I would say, even divinely given wisdom uh, to navigate these kinds of questions where they're coming up and the ways they're coming up. Okay, so I think that leads me to want to talk about two things after the break. One um, would be when you talk about this artful leadership or <clears throat> inartful leadership in some places being demonstrated, part of what we're talking about is how leaders talk to their people, what they say when they say it, how they say it. It's not just content, it's tone. I want to talk a little bit about the rhetoric of leadership right now. Um, and then I want to talk about the election cycle that's coming up. So um, maybe we can do those two topics, the rhetoric of leadership, um, and then how are we going to conduct an election in the middle of a pandemic? That's up next with Adam Carrington. Fear is 
Continuing my conversation with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. All right, Adam, I set up uh, the, the, the question just before the break. Let's talk a little bit about rhetoric from leaders in times of crisis. What do we need? What are we looking for? Um, and where might we find some positive examples today? Right. I, I think in some ways uh, we it's all it's good too to think about why we need rhetoric. Mm, you know, why, why why not just do things? Why not just make us safe? And I think that uh, part of it is we we are beings that are uh, social. We're beings that are uh, built on communication in, in a good way. That 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 we speak to each other. We. Uh, assure each other, we comfort each other, we um, uh, protect each other verbally, and that therefore it's not just doing, it is speaking. Words do matter in in, in the process of, of protecting and comforting in times like this, and that our uh, leaders are particularly in a place uh, to do good or ill uh, as far as comforting us uh, when, when, there, when there's hurt, as far as... Uh, uh, um, guiding us and and informing us and persuading us in a popular government and uh you know i think that we've we we've seen some instances of persons that have been uh, uh, good at that uh, uh, in this in this crisis. I think that I'll, I'll try to be bipartisan. I think on one side, you've got Governor Mike DeWine in Ohio that not only has been very active, but uh, he, he's had uh, uh, you know uh, uh, every every day at two o'clock a, a press conference that Ohioans I've talked to people there have really been comforted by. They now have what they call wine with DeWine at two. Uh, and on the other side, uh, uh, I, I think Governor Cuomo uh, uh, has been uh, uh, in New York has been uh, uh, a pretty stalwart uh, person saying, you know, we're going to save everyone we can. This is a moment in time, but it's a hard moment, uh, you know, those sorts of things. And I think, you know, going back throughout history, if you look at men like um, Winston Churchill standing up in, in, in 1939, 1940 in the face of the Nazis about to try to invade England, if you look at um, Lincoln, um, in the midst of the Civil War, both at the beginning articulating what he thought the American country was about, at the end trying to comfort those who had lost uh, loved ones uh, by talking about having malice for none and charity for all. Uh, we see these moments where uh, 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 men of, of great rhetorical skill, men and women, uh, uh, doing so, and I think we shouldn't underestimate how much that matters and how much bad rhetoric uh, an inability to do so can 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 do damage to our our psyche, our community, and and, and more. We've heard, um, you know, reference in the past to the president of the United States serving as comforter in chief. So I think that the comfort that a president can uh, can bring to a people is significant. Um, we certainly expect our president to be resolute when we are threatened as a people, and so strong rhetoric. In the face of any sort of threat um, to us as a people, we expect we have an expectation of that. We expect um, to be well informed by our government. We expect our government officials to tell us the truth, but we also expect them to deliver it in a way that doesn't just scare the hell out of people. Right. Oh, I hopefully I'm, I, I think I'm allowed to say that word. It's in the Bible. Um, right. Like we we want the truth. We want it delivered in a way that does not gloss over the hard parts um, we, we want people to speak the truth, but we want them to do so in a way that honors both God and people. 
Yes, and 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 you're you're right. Rhetoric is as is itself building off when I was talking about wisdom or prudence. Um, you have to keep you have to balance a bunch of factors. You don't want to treat. Um, uh, your listeners as if they're all uh, foolish or or childlike, um, but you also want to 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 give them reason to want to uh, keep fighting, to keep continuing and working. And I think in in a crisis like this, I think you you need to be honest and say um, there are real health risks. I think another thing to admit is we don't know everything. Uh, it's going to be hard at times to discern how far should we have gone. Uh, we're going to need to comfort people, not just based on, you know, some some I think people at this time have gotten overly focused on one thing, the economy or uh, public health. When people's broader health is bound up in both, having a job to provide for families and being healthy. And uh, a good rhetoric uh, is going to uh, recognize the full human person that we are. Uh, beings that need uh, and, and, and need uh, communication. We're beings that need relationship. We're beings that need health, and we're beings that need meaningful work. And 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 the best uh, examples are the people that are honoring all of that at once. And that's one thing too with these shelter in places. I mean, uh, it really is denying a kind of essential part of who we are as 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 social uh, uh, re relationship built beings, but also uh, uh, trying to respect the need for us to to keep our health as well. So it's again a, a, a similar to the questions we were talking about before. Good rhetoric should follow uh, prudence again and how it communicates. Okay, so let's um, pivot. You and I are going to have to return to this subject um, the next time we talk uh, or the time after that because the election is not immediately upon us, but we are going to have an election. We are in an election cycle right now. Talk with us a little bit about your expectations for the conduct of an election in the middle of this kind of national crisis. Right, and what we hope is that it that that it's it's not a real issue in the fall. But if if this pandemic acts like other ones, uh, we could have a resurgence in the fall. And and the 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 Spanish flu, more people died in the second recurrence uh, uh, after a summer reprieve than in the first. So we mainly, I'm not saying that's going to happen. We have to be prepared for it. And I think that uh, we've seen some good and bad examples of how to handle it this spring with primaries. The stakes are much higher when it's an actual national election, not just a primary or state elections. And I think we need to have, we, I think the best in a normal situation is almost everyone that can votes in person on the day of the election. That said, I think we need to be developing contingency plans for uh, what's the safest way of doing mail-in voting without having fraud? What are other ways of, of accommodating if public health means that some people can't get in here. And here's the two issues we're going to have to balance, and both are essential to popular government. On one hand, we want as many people voting as want to and are allowed to. Uh, a government of, by, for the people can't be shutting people out that need to vote. Otherwise, we're not really hearing the voice of the American people, and that uh, makes democracy less legitimate. On the other hand, there are serious issues of fraud that can happen 
uh, more by mail than in person, and we need to protect the integrity of that process. So we really believe that the votes that were cast were legitimate votes that were meant to be. Either one could really destabilize our, our democracy and overcome, I think, a great thing that our system is set up, which is that we settle, uh, Lincoln said this, we settle disputes by ballots, by persuasion, by argument, not by bullets, not by killing each other. And it is extraordinary how long we've been able to maintain that civil war aside uh, and how uh, the peaceful transition and debate of power. And uh, this is going to test that. We need to make sure that the process is legitimate so that we don't put that at risk. Dr. Adam Carrington, thank you so much, as always, for joining us. We look forward to continuing this conversation in the future. Absolutely. Happy to have this with you and hope everyone stays safe out there. I feel like you're not only training us up in good rhetoric, but in righteousness. So I appreciate that. We'll, uh, we'll talk with you next time. we got to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. All righty. So um, <clears throat> we started the hour by uh, offering some what I will say are good news stories. But that means that other people have to tell on each other. Right. So there are some people encouraging us to, like, tell on our neighbors that maybe they're out there doing something that does not comply with uh, social distancing guidelines. I want us to be telling on each other for the good things, the good positive stories. So I call it gossip up. Right. I want us to be positive tattletales. I want you to be the person who tells on that person who you see or hear about or have experience doing something good. And so that is a great way for you to use your social media today. Maybe you're on Facebook. Maybe you're on Instagram. Maybe you're on Twitter. I'm in all of those places if you want to track me down. Um, and let's uh, let's get some gossip up going. you got some gossip up to share. I want you to share it. And I want you to include me in that. So you can uh, text those good news stories and links to 877-933-2484. Or you can email me, Carmen, at MyFaithRadio.com. You can find me on all the social medias. Let's get some goss up going today. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.